Well, let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read this morning from verse 1 of Colossians chapter 1 to verse 8. It's the words of Paul the Apostle as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Coloss. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the, go- of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit, as it does also in you, since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you this morning for your grace and for your great power that works toward us who believe. And we thank you for this letter to the Colossians. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and that we would understand what we read, that we would glorify you for all things that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this study of Colossians to honor your name and to give the saints here courage and peace and assurance in you, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin now our second sermon series here at All Saints Church. We finished Ephesians, and we're now beginning Colossians. I'm going to call this sermon series Colossians, the Sufficiency of Christ. The Sufficiency of Christ. And I'll talk about why I'm calling it that. But again, why are we doing Colossians now? I've mentioned this before, but we're going to be looking at Colossians because Colossians was a letter that was written at the same time Ephesians was written, and Philemon also was written. And it was actually sent out at the same time Ephesians was written. And so, since we finished Ephesians, it would be good to look at Colossians and also Philemon after this, because it gives us a concentrated look at Paul, a concentrated view of Paul's thoughts at a certain uh, period of time in his life. Because sometimes, as, again, I've mentioned this before, but as we read Paul's epistles, they can be kind of disjointed and scattered. But we have the opportunity to look at three that are written at the same time. So that's why it will be very beneficial to look at this. And besides, uh, having just read Colossians, I'm sure you've read Colossians, uh, it's just a glorious vision of Jesus Christ that we desperately need to see. So because Colossians is written at the same time as Ephesians, there's a lot of similarities to Ephesians, and there's a lot of differences also uh, from Ephesians as well. So before we begin looking at Colossians verse by verse, I just want to talk about those differences and those similarities. So what are the differences? What are the similarities and what are the differences between the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians? Well, here's a, here's a similarity. 
They're both written by Paul, right? There's a one addition in Colossians. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Colossians was written by Paul with Timothy. If you, as we look at Colossians, we're going to see that it was really, I mean, Paul is the one who really has written this. Timothy's just there basically saying amen, amen, amen to the whole thing. But there's one similarity. I think that they could have been written the very same day. Now, no one knows that for sure, but it's not implausible that Ephesians and Colossians were written the same day. They bear such a resemblance to each other. So many verses in Colossians are almost identical to that in Ephesians, as if it was just perfectly fresh on Paul's mind. He just wrote the exact same thing. So that's a possibility, but I won't be dogmatic about that. Both Ephesians and Colossians are neatly divided into two. So we're already used to this. In Ephesians, we have a doctrinal portion, which actually is the first three chapters neatly. And then the last three chapters are a practical uh, portion of the epistle. So that is how Ephesians is divided up. In Colossians, it's, it's shorter by two chapters. Ephesians is six chapters, and Colossians is four chapters, but it's neatly divided in the middle. Two chapters of Colossians is doctrinal, and two is practical. So there's a little bit of overlap, of course, but that's also similar. You find much of the same content, much of the same expressions, and much of the same exhortations in both of the epistles. You'll notice that. But one thing you will notice, you ought to notice, is that Ephesians is more advanced, whereas Colossians is very elementary. As I, as I read Colossians, see, you get this sense that he's writing, well, he says, I'm writing to you who I've never seen before. So in Ephesians, we know that he spent some years with them. They were established in grace. He wasn't writing to them basic things. He was writing to them about many things that are very deep. But in Colossians, he's writing to a church that's never seen him before. And as I was reading Colossians, I even thought to myself, this is an excellent letter to give to new Christians. This is an excellent letter. Um, it talks about their new life in Christ. It talks about very basic things that are very important for young Christians to understand and for old Christians to understand too. So, yeah, it doesn't matter who you are. It's a good letter, right? But it is elementary. It's, it's a perfect letter. Actually, I, I think I'm going to start recommending young Christians to read Colossians. It just grounds you in the basic truth of our Savior, Jesus. Paul didn't go to Colossians. He wasn't the one who brought the gospel to them. We're going to, we see here, actually we read this already uh, in our eight verses. Verse seven, Epaphras was the one who took the gospel to the Colossians. So Paul wasn't the evangelist in Colossae or Coloss. You can say it either way. Um, which we need to remember that the apostles weren't the only ones who were missionaries. Sometimes you get the impression that it was Paul that just went everywhere and preached the gospel in every city. It wasn't always Paul. Paul had... Paul didn't go everywhere. The apostles also preached, but more than that, simple men and women also went out and preached the gospel all over. And so Epaphras, he's the one who brought the gospel. So you don't need to be an apostle to share the gospel, Caden. You don't need to be a, an apostle. Anyone can share the gospel. So that's good to remember. Another difference between Colossians and Ephesians is that the letter to the Colossians, written by Paul, 
is written in response to a problem in the church. So there's no trace of that in Ephesians. There's no sense that Paul's writing to the Ephesians saying, there's a problem and I need to correct, correct something here. But in Colossians, there is a problem. We find false teachers influencing the Colossians. And so Paul is writing to respond to that. And that's a very important thing we're going to need to understand as we read this letter because um, Paul writes with that in view. If we don't have that in view, we're not going to understand this letter. Now, here's another thing we need to notice. The commentators who write commentaries on Colossians, they're divided. Were the false teachers Gnostics or were the false teachers Judaizers? That's a question that needs to be answered right here at the beginning. Because if we take the view that it's the Gnostics, that's going to affect the way we interpret the letter to the Colossians. But if we, take the, if we understand it to be the Judaizers, then again, that will, interpret, it will affect how we interpret this letter. I, I actually have a, a commentary on Colossians in my, in my room. The whole thing is based upon the idea that Paul was responding to Gnosticism. The whole book, right from the beginning, right to the end. And so everything he has to say basically has to, is colored by this view that it's, it's about the Gnostics. I'm going to explain what that means. So the main argument, the main argument that Colossians was written in response to the Gnostics is found in chapter 2, verse 8. If you want to look there. This is the main argument. Because Paul says this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. So the word philosophy kind of stands out in that, in, in that verse. And in the commentator's mind, they say, ah, philosophy, you see, that means Gnosticism. Now, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism was the blending of Christianity and another way of thinking. The blending of Christianity and Hellenistic Greek ways of thinking or Eastern Oriental ways of thinking. The blending of these things. And the result was this. With Gnosticism, because you so you talk about Jesus, you talk about you know, that he's the son of God and all that, but you blend it with all these other things. And the result is that um, there's this mystical secret knowledge that only certain people have. If you're a Gnostic, you believe that there's this secret, there's the plain knowledge, you know, you read it in scripture, there's the plain stuff, and then there's the deeper mystical secret stuff that only the special can understand if, they're, if they deny themselves, if they fast, if they separate themselves from society. If they, if they do these mystical practices, then they'll attain this mystical knowledge, and then they'll know something deeper about Jesus that the common folk doesn't understand. That's basically Gnosticism in a nutshell. And of course, there's lots of different forms and varieties of it. But it's the blending of Christianity and that kind of thinking, producing secret knowledge and elitism. Basically, I know something you don't because I have you know, been initiated or something like that. So it, it came up with all this. It, came, it produced elitism as well. Now, there's always been traces of Gnosticism uh, since Christianity began. But Gnosticism... Uh, really was a, an issue in the second century, not the first century. So the second century, you do your history study, you'll find that that was a big 
source of debate in the church in the second century, and the early Christians had to combat that kind of an idea. But Colossians was written in the first century. Colossians was written about 62 AD. And I don't believe that Paul is responding to the Gnostics. I don't believe that. I believe Paul's responding to the Judaizers, not the Gnostics. And actually, the weight of evidence is in favor of the Judaizers, not the Gnostics. For instance, this word philosophy has nothing to do with Gnosticism. It doesn't have to have anything to do with Gnosticism. Sure, they use that word, but so did the Jews also use that word. And you can read in extra-biblical literature in that day, Jewish writings, non-Gnostic writings, they use the word philosophy all the time to refer to Jewish theology and ways of thinking. So it's not an exclusively Greek Gnostic word. This word philosophy doesn't automatically mean that. The Jews also could be elitists. Very simple, right? We see examples of elitism in the Bible. Remember the Pharisees when they're debating uh, about Jesus and they're, they're wanting to put him to death and they look at all the people believing in Jesus and they say, these, these common people who don't know the law are cursed, right? So they felt superior, like we know the law and they don't know the law. We understand it. They, they're just common, ignorant, uneducated people. That's why they follow after Jesus. So certainly elitism uh, was not Gnostic exclusively, that the Jews also uh, could be elitists as well. And the theme of wisdom in Colossians, particularly in chapter 2, the theme of knowledge and wisdom uh, doesn't have to do with Gnosticism either. This whole issue of wisdom in Paul, in the Bible, remember 1 Corinthians now, chapter 2, when Paul talks about the wisdom of God in chapters 1 and 2. He's not talking about, and he's talking about we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, not the wisdom that the world has, but they don't understand it. He's not talking about uh, Gnosticism there. He's talking about salvation by grace versus salvation by works. It's a wisdom that comes from God. And the wisdom of the world isn't this kind of highfalutin mystical thing. It's really just the rudimentary wisdom of the world that you want to go to heaven? You got to be a good person. You want to be forgiven? You got to keep the commandments. God gave the commandments. It's just this basic understanding of how life works, a religious way of thinking, the wisdom of the world, and certainly that pertains to the Jew. The Judaizers are all over Colossians. Paul talks about circumcision in Colossians, and the main thrust of his attack, or the main uh, point that he gets at the end of chapter 2 is you don't need to um, keep festivals, and you don't need to deny yourself food and drink, and you don't need to do the Sabbath, or you don't need to worship angels. This is what he says, because it's all shadows of Christ. It's all, you're all complete in Christ. You don't need these Jewish things. It's a Jewish issue, uh, festivals and Sabbaths and new moons. And what about worshiping angels? That, is that Jewish? Absolutely it is. That's another clue that this is about the Judaizers, because um, the Jews had an elaborate theology of angels, the Old Testament talks a lot about angels, and the, the Jewish people had a, a theology of angels, and you see it, their theology really uh, being written about in um, like the, uh, the apocalyptic writings and um, extra-biblical writings in the Second Temple period. But, and you find rabbis in those centuries, in the first century, saying, prohibiting angel worship. Rabbis prohibiting angel worship, saying, stop doing that, meaning 
Jews were worshiping angels at the time Paul was writing, and Paul himself prohibits it as well. So what's up with that? You know, What's up with angel worship? It's very natural, or it's a very easy step. It's a dangerous thing, but it's an easy step for a Jew to, or anyone who believes in angels, to uh, begin to acknowledge them and, and serve them. Because in the Jewish mind, the Jew was the agent of God. God was God, but the, Jew, the angel was how God worked. So the angel was the messenger. The angel was the, the, the agent of action. The angel was the one who was like a mediator almost, they could, they could have thought, or they thought in their mind. So I'm really dealing with angels, not God. And so this worship of angels isn't necessarily the Jew thinking that the angel is God and we need to worship the angel as God. Because the word worship there in the Greek actually doesn't imply that in terms of worshiping. It's a, it's, a, it's a word only used a few times in the Bible. But serving. They serve the angels. Basically, you know, and it, and it, could, and it, it took a form of false humility. Like, oh, I, I'm, not, you know, I'm not worthy enough to directly pray to God. I'll pray to the angel who will go to God for me. I'm not worthy enough to go to God. I'm not worthy enough to serve God, so I'll serve the angel who's actually, he's the one I'm actually dealing with anyway, and he'll be in with God. And there's traces of this still today all over, isn't there? In Roman Catholicism too, right? All the saints. I'm not worthy enough to pray to Jesus, I'll pray to Mary, right? I'm not worthy enough to go to God directly, I'll just go through the saints. Same idea. The Jews, not all of them, because the rabbis prohibited it, but in that day, it was, it was a Jewish problem, not a Gnostic problem, it was a Jewish one that um, that they would serve angels in order to uh, be acceptable to God. So all this is to say that Paul is responding to the Judaizers in this letter. And what are the Judaizers up to? The Judaizers are Jewish so-called Christians. These are the, the Jews who believed in Jesus. They weren't non-believing in Jesus' Jews. And they were the ones who taught, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You have to also keep the law and do these other things in order to be right with God. That is the whole issue with the Judaizers. It's not about Jesus necessarily. And this is very important. The whole Judaizing problem is not necessarily about Jesus. No one's questioning that Jesus is the Son of God. No one's questioning that Jesus is the Messiah. No one's questioning that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And no one's questioning that the forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus. The issue is faith. That's the whole issue. The Judaizer says it's not, you don't receive all that that Jesus did by faith alone. That's the issue. Not Jesus, but faith. The receiving of the atonement, the receiving of the forgiveness of sins. And the Judaizer says, it's not faith alone. Yes, faith is important, but you have to keep the law of Moses. You have to keep the law also in order to be saved. You have to do something besides faith. Faith isn't enough. That is the Judaizing issue. Now, here's an interesting thing. Paul deals with the Judaizers very differently than he deals with them in Galatians and in other letters. Because he deals with them in a lot of letters. They're all over the place. Uh, Colossae was 
uh, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. That was, you know, a common target for the Judaizers. It was so close to Israel. And uh, Paul, that was where he first did his, he did his mission work there. He, he was in Asia Minor a lot. And so the Judaizers just kind of followed behind him and just taught all these false doctrines wherever he went. Colossae was in that um, locality, in that place. And so Paul was always dealing with these guys. But there's a difference how he deals with them in Colossians and how he deals with them in Galatians. In Galatians, he pulls out the scriptures. In Galatians, he goes to the Old Testament and he shows how it is by faith alone and it's not by works of any kind that we're saved and not by circumcision. And he's ripping out the scriptures. Remember, he says, tell me, you who say you need to keep the law, don't you hear the law? And he goes to Abraham and he goes to Sarah and he goes to Hagar. And he's always quoting these scriptures. In Colossians, he doesn't deal with the Judaizers this way. What he does in Colossians is he magnifies Jesus Christ. So instead of, and I'm not saying that one way or the other is the correct way. Both of them are wonderful ways to deal with the Judaizers. One way is to attack their notions with scripture and to show how it's not by works. The other way is to just magnify the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and say, look what Jesus is. Look who he is. Look at the glory of Jesus. He answers everything. You don't need anything else because you have everything in him. This is, the, this is the way Paul deals with it in Colossians. So Colossians is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus Christ. You could say Colossians takes this outline that Paul, after the introduction, he talks about the glory of Christ. Then he talks about the sufficiency of Christ in the realm of doctrine and wisdom and knowledge. And then he talks about the sufficiency of Christ in the realm of uh, sanctification and Christian life. You don't need anything else. What do you need all this stuff for? You've got it all in Jesus. Everything is provided in him and you're complete in him. So it's all about Jesus. He's preeminent. He's sufficient. If you want to see God, if you want to see God, you can see him in Christ. If you need wisdom and knowledge, it's hidden in Christ. If you need a mediator between you and God, you've got it in Christ. If you need justification and forgiveness and redemption, it's obtained in Christ. If you need hope, it's found in Christ. If you need an identity, it's created in Christ. If you need a way to live, it's discovered in Christ. If you need motivation in life, it's all in Christ. You don't need anything else. So this is how he shows the bankruptcy of of the law, of the Judaizing idea, is that what do you need it for? You've got everything in him. So this is the sum of Colossians, the letter. The true knowledge of God, the salvation of your soul, and the new life in Christ is all found in Christ. Everything that you need is in him. This is the problem, and this is how he deals with it. Follow me? Make sense? So it's very exciting to uh, start looking at Colossians. It's very exciting. And so I call this study the sufficiency of Christ. Because as we read Colossians, we will see that Jesus, everything that we need is in Jesus. We don't need anything else. It's all in him. Okay, you ready for the exposition now? Let's go. <clears throat> Verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Colossians, yeah. 
Paul starts the letter by saying he's the apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he starts simply by saying who he is. Never seen these guys before. They are obviously know who he is. I'm sure, you know, undoubtedly they know who he is. But nonetheless, he writes the letter to them and he states who he is. He doesn't say Paul the tent maker, does he? Paul the traveler, right? Paul the converted you know, Pharisee. He doesn't say that, but he says who I is. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I just think that's wonderful. Not everyone is an apostle, right? But he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He sides with Jesus. He's not just an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He takes his stand with Jesus. And he says, if you want to know who I am and my identity and everything, I'm, all, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. And we all can do that as well, by the way. Jacob, the servant of Jesus Christ, right? Might not be an apostle, but you can certainly say you're a servant of Christ, right? Susan, a servant of Christ. That's who I am. You can side with Jesus and say, I'm with him. So it's wonderful to identify yourself with Jesus. That's all I'm trying to say is, it's a beautiful thing to identify yourself with Jesus and not be ashamed to be a Christian. Say, yeah, I'm with Jesus. We've seen his introduction before. Timothy's here as well. Timothy, our brother, he says. And it's written, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. The saints. Again, we've looked at this before too. A saint is one who's set apart. To be a saint is to be God's holy people. Paul now refers to these Gentiles as God's holy people. Now that's radical stuff, right? As we've seen already in Ephesians, that the, that the Gentiles would be considered God's holy people, would be considered God's true Jews. So not only Jews are the saints anymore. And that word saint was very common in the Old Testament. Uh, Jews would have called themselves saints. It's not just a Christian New Testament thing. But now it's applied to these people at Colossae. The saints. If you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, you're a saint. Set apart as God's holy people. He calls them faithful. Now just so you know, faithful doesn't mean fidelity here. You know, I'm so unfaithful. Doesn't mean fidelity. It means believing. The saints, the believing ones. The believing ones. The ones who believe in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, to these ones, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every letter, I believe, I've, I looked at this once, every single letter of Paul starts and ends with grace. Every single one. So every letter. You just you look at it right here and you flip to the end and it says grace with you, amen. Like every single one is, is just sandwiched between grace. That's the theme. It's, the, um, it's what every letter is insulated by. You know, you have a house, you insulate it with that itchy stuff, insulated with grace. His letters are insulated with grace. And we know also what this means. It's spoken to the saints. This isn't a blessing you can say to a non-believer, unfortunately, until they have come to be a saint, until they have come to believe on Jesus. We as Christians aren't to say grace and peace 
to a person. We can wish that they would have it. We can say, and I hope that one day you'll have grace and peace. But we can't bless them with the enjoyment of grace and peace because there is no peace for the wicked, right? There's no peace until someone has been justified by the blood of Christ. But once a person has been justified, it should be in our hearts when we meet one another. You know, when I meet Elliot, in my heart should just want him to be blessed with grace and peace, to enjoy the peace that he has in Jesus and to enjoy the grace that he is standing in, in Jesus as well. Now, almost every letter of Paul's almost, nearly every letter of his, he mentions that he prays for and thanks God for the believers. It's interesting. Paul always is saying this, isn't he? I thank God for you every time I pray for you. It's so common for him to say that. We, we see by this that Paul is a praying man and a thankful man and a man who believes in the sovereignty of God. Because he's saying, I thank God for you when I pray. He prays because he believes in prayer. He thanks God because he believes God is the one who is working in you, who has caused you to believe and who's producing in you the fruit of love. He thanks God for their faith and their love in Christ Jesus. So verse 4, there's two things that get Paul and Timothy excited. You know, what do you get excited about when you think about your brother or your sister? You know? I thank God that they have a great job. Well, that's good. That's good. I thank God that he's nice to me. <laughs> that's good too. But Paul and Timothy are excited about they're not I thank God that they send me money. Yeah. They thank God that they have faith and love. Those are the two things that get them excited. They're excited to find faith and love in the believers. This is what's important. A Christian who doesn't have faith and love isn't a Christian. A person who doesn't have faith and love. But if a person has faith and love, Paul's super excited about that. He says, wonderful. I praise God for you, and I thank God for you. Faith in Christ is simply trusting. What, does, what do they have that he's excited about? The Colossians, these Gentiles who used to be pagans, now have a trust in what Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, did on the cross for them. This is what faith in Jesus is. It's simply trusting in him. They're trusting in him for their salvation. If you are a Christian, then you have faith in Jesus Christ. You're trusting in Jesus for your salvation. You're trusting what he did for you on the cross. This isn't some general, I believe in Jesus that he exists. But this is trusting in him for your salvation. That you want, Each one of us is going to have to die one day, right? Unless Jesus comes back. Each one of us is going to have to die. Faith in Christ is trusting him that though I die, yet I'll live. Though I die, I won't have to be judged. I won't, be, I won't perish because of what he's done on the cross. And notice in verse 4 also, brothers and sisters, that 
they're excited that they have love, but what kind of love is it, does it say? Is it this narrow, isolated, exclusive love for, you know, their neighbor or for their, 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 their family, their immediate family? You notice it says, I'm exci- he's thanking God that they have love for all the saints. A love for all the saints. Not just for your mom and your dad. Not just for your brother or your sister. But for all the saints. Not just for the saints here in this little building. You know? We can think, my goodness, how am I going to love all the saints? I mean, it's hard enough to love the saints at all saints. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> but it's true that faith in Christ, as we'll see, produces a love for all the saints. And it's a view to love all the saints that God wants for us. Not just to love those immediately close to us, but all. Love those saints in Egypt who are being persecuted. Now here's something very important. Really the bulk of this morning's message is right here. Verse 5, it says in the King James Bible, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. But the word for there in the Greek is the word dia, which means through or because. It's the instrument. So a better translation would be, and I think most modern Bibles get this correct, It's because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. What is that connected to? So this verse 5 can't be read in isolation. But what is it connected to? And yes, actually, Alan, the, the Greek here is quite clear. And the scholars have said, there's, there's a debate here between, you know, is it, I thank God for you, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So Paul is the one who's thanking God because you have hope in heaven. Or is it you have love for the saints because of the hope which is laid up for heaven, in heaven. And the the best uh, answer is the latter. That is that you have love for the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So this is extremely important. So here's a better, perhaps a better rendition of the verse. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the love that springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. The love that springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. So it's connected to love here. And hope is a very important word too. When you think of the word hope, don't think of the word wishfulness or you're, 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 you're hoping, you know, you're, you're, not ter- you're not sure, but you're hoping that you'll make it to heaven. This is the word, you could put here assurance. This is the word assurance or confident expectation. But I like the word assurance. I like the, t- that word assurance. The assurance that you have, the assurance that you have, that you'll make it that you have eternal life. The assurance. This is what John Calvin writes about this verse, on this particular verse. He says, the hope of eternal life, or the assurance of eternal life, will never be inactive in us, 
so as not to produce love in us. So Calvin says, when we have hope or assurance that we're going to make it to heaven or that we have eternal life, then we have love that's produced in us. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, about on this verse, comments, Let it never be said of us that we are dreaming about the future and forgetting the present. Has it ever been said of you? Or have you ever said that of somebody else? You're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good, right? Let that not be said of us. Let the future sanctify the present to highest uses. Let the future sanctify the present. Then he says this, Through the Spirit of God, the hope of heaven is the most potent force for the product of virtue. It is a fountain of joyous effort. It is the cornerstone of cheerful holiness. The man who has this hope in him goes about the Lord's work with vigor, for the joy of the Lord is his strength. The joy of the Lord is his strength. He can labor without present reward, for he looks for a reward in the world to come. Isn't that beautiful? You can labor without present reward, because you look for the reward in the world to come. Now that's, that's powerful. That's life-changing. Because often we're not motivated, are we? Unless we have a present reward. You can see how, how truly motivated you are to do something when there's nothing for you in it. You know? There's no gain. There's no pride. There's no reward. How motivated are you then at that point? If a mother tells a, a, a child to uh, do the dishes, and then you'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a present. Oh, I'll go do the dishes. Woo, <laughs> right? Just do the dishes and you don't get anything. <laughs> oh, just drag your feet over there, right? <laughs> Why? Because all we have respect to, all we're looking for is a present reward. Spurgeon says here, the hope that's laid up for us in heaven frees us from that kind of thing, brothers and sisters, that we don't only work because of things in this life, but we have something we're looking for in the future, and it sanctifies the present. So here's the principle, and this is radical, and this is important. That is that we don't receive assurance. We don't receive assurance from our works, but we receive our works from our assurance. Okay? Assurance isn't the product of works. Works is the product of assurance. That is an extremely important principle. An extremely important principle. Because I hear so often Christians saying, well, they're looking at their own life. They're looking at their sins. They're looking at their lack of love. And they're saying, oh, I must not be a Christian. I, I must not really have, I don't have assurance I'm going to make it to heaven because look at my life. I'm just sinful and I'm unfaithful and blah, blah, blah. Who are they looking to? Who are they looking to for hope and assurance? Self, right? They're looking to self. They're looking at themselves. Do I have hope that I'm going to make it to heaven? <laughs> right? I better look at myself to see if I have hope here. <laughs> well, guess what? If you look to yourself to have hope, you're not going to ever have hope, ever. You're going to look at yourself, you're going to find your sins, and you're going to give up hope. And when you have no hope, you have no works. It just spirals, and you get worse. Hope comes not from looking at yourself. Hope comes from looking at Jesus, from believing the gospel. Look at verse 5. 
the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel? Where did they get the hope? Where did they get their hope, according to verse 5? From the gospel. The gospel is a message of hope. It's a message of assurance. The gospel came to them, and with it came hope. They heard the gospel, they believed it, and they received hope. And that hope produced love in their life. That's the order of things. You hear the gospel, you believe it, you have hope and assurance that you're going to make it, and then that produces a, a change of life. It produces works. It's looking to Jesus, it's having assurance and resting in him that produces love. So if you're struggling in your Christian life, if you're struggling with sins, and if you're struggling with your works, and if you're struggling with love, and you say, man, I just don't have this, don't look to yourself in despair because we're not saved by our works. Here's what you need to do. You need to evangelize yourself. You need to hear the gospel, hear the truth of the gospel, and look up. Look away from yourself. Look to Jesus who died on the cross for you. Look to God who loved you as a sinner, sent his son for you as a sinner, paid for your sins on the cross, all of your sins. You say, you know, here's another thing. We often say, yeah, but I'm talking about Christian sins. I'm talking about sins that I commit as a Christian. I mean, those are the bad ones, right? I mean, I can understand that Jesus died for my sins before I was a Christian because I was like a bad guy and I was a, you know, I didn't understand and I was sinning. Yeah, he died for those. But now that I'm a Christian, I understand, you know, I know now and I still sin. I mean, that's so bad. I mean, that, Jesus didn't die for those ones, right? Those ones exclude me because I know better. But brothers and sisters, what is a sin except that you do something you know is wrong? And what, what a person, a person who says that is, is divesting sin of its ugliness. What they're saying is, Jesus died for my sins that weren't that ugly, but my ugly sins, the ones that I know better, he didn't really die for those ones. So Jesus died for my, you know, sins light. But let me tell you, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And a sin is a sin. And the sin is ugly. And the sin is when you do something you know is wrong. And that's what Jesus died for. Not just the sins you, were, you committed in ignorance, but the sins you committed not in ignorance. That's what Jesus died for. He died for you. He died for you, a bad person. And so don't look at yourself and think, I'm too bad. Because it's for you that Jesus died, a bad person. And you find your hope there that even though I'm a bad guy, Christ loved me and gave himself for me, and I have hope of eternal life. It's not hope rooted in myself, but in him. You fix your mind on that, and you rest in the assurance that comes from the gospel, and love is then produced. Why is love produced? Because you realize how much God loves you. It's like, wow, he'd love me this much that he'd do that for me. And he's, why do I have eternal life? Because he loved me and gave himself for me. And then you can look at other people and you can go, wow, do you know how much God loves us? It's amazing. God loves guys like us so bad, so much. So assurance comes from the gospel. And notice in verse 5, it says, the word of the truth of the gospel. 
I don't believe what he's saying there is you heard before the true gospel. Of course, they did hear the true gospel. But I don't think it's just merely saying you heard the true gospel as opposed to the false gospel. What he's saying here is you heard the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is the word of truth. That is, the gospel brings to you the truth. The truth about sin. The truth about righteousness. The truth about judgment. When you heard and believed the gospel, you heard the truth. The truth about how ugly your sin is and the truth about the righteousness of God. How holy and just God is and yet how he provided Jesus Christ to justify us. That's the truth. And that's important because there's all these uh, lies that go around that passes the gospel, right? And they say, well, you'll get in because your sin's not that bad or, you know, God will just forgive you without Christ. But that's not the truth about things. Because the truth about things is that sin must be dealt with and that Jesus did deal with it at the cross. The truth is super uncomfortable, right? The truth of the gospel is very uncomfortable, but it's the only thing that brings hope. The uncomfortable truth brings hope. But if we take the uncomfortableness out of it and we just say, well, since you're not that bad of a guy, there's no hope in that. There's no real hope. You have a false hope, but there's no real, true, righteous hope in that. Verse 6 and 7, Paul now says that the gospel came unto you, and it has come not only to you, but it's come into all the world and brings forth this fruit, this fruit of, of love. As it does also in you, since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. That's another beautiful description of what the gospel is. It's, the gospel is when you hear the grace of God in truth. That's what the gospel is. And again, you hear it in truth. Because there's a lot of funky, phony grace that's being preached, right? Grace after all you can do. That's not the grace of God in truth. The grace of God in truth is that even though you're totally a sinner and you deserve to go to hell, Jesus Christ died on, all, on the cross for all of your sins that you could be righteously forgiven. That's grace. That's the grace of God in truth. And you don't have to keep the commandments. You can receive that because he's done it all. But here Paul points, he does two things here in verse 6. He emphasizes two things in verse 6 and verse 7. And here's what he does. He says this, and he says these two things now with the false teachers in view. So we have to bear that in mind now. At this point right here, Paul has the false teachers in view. And if we don't see that, we'll not really interpret these verses correctly. But here's what he says. When he says, The gospel has come unto you as it has come into all the world. It brings forth fruit as it has also in you since the day you heard of it, since the day you learned of it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Here's the two things Paul emphasizes. The gospel that bore fruit in their lives, the gospel that bore fruit in their lives was the gospel that they heard at the beginning from Epaphras. Catch that? What gospel bears fruit in your life? What gospel bore fruit in your life from the day you heard it? Well, the gospel you heard from Epaphras the one that you heard at the beginning, and not the one that you're hearing right now from these Judaizers. 
that's the point of what he's saying. He's pointing them to when they first heard the gospel. He's saying, that gospel that, Paul, that Epaphras preached, that's the one, that's the grace of God and truth, that's the word of truth, and that's the one that bears fruit in your life. The one at first, not the one that you're hearing right now. So he points them back to the gospel they heard at first. That's important. You know, Christians, they get saved at first, right? They get saved when they realize the grace of God and truth and that they're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And they get excited and they get loving. They want to evangelize and do all these things. But over time, all these other views start creeping in, right? And sometimes you hear Bible teachings and you go to church and pastors and they say things that are very different than what you first heard. And then you find love gone and evangelism gone and joy gone. And then all, you, all of a sudden, you know, you're like, what happened to the old days? And Paul here is telling us, you know, remember the gospel you heard at first. The one that was about grace, you remember that? Like right now, I know you're hearing a lot about law and keeping commandments and things. But I just want to remind you that when Epaphras shared the gospel with you, he talked to you about grace. He talked to you about grace and that grace brought you hope, didn't it? And that hope brought you love. Remember. The second thing Paul emphasizes is the global nature of the gospel. He says the gospel is bearing fruit all around the world. So basically he's saying, Colossians, can you broaden your horizons? You guys aren't the only Christians. An isolated church is a dangerous thing because if they, if they don't connect themselves with the rest of the Christians around the world, they can think that whatever they do and whatever they think is the only right way. And Paul's saying, look up. The gospel that Epaphras brought you is the same gospel that was preached around the world and bears fruit all around the world too. It's not the gospel of the Judaizers. It's the gospel of grace. So he's saying, think, think globally, not just locally. Don't just think about the gospel that, or the, the things you're thinking about, the issues you're thinking about. Look around, you know. Look at the gospel and how it's been bearing fruit all around the world, and you're not the only ones. So he's lifting up their, their horizons, and this is um, in response to the false teachers who have been following him around. So you see what he's saying here? You see what he's saying? The Judaizers are saying, you need to do all this to be saved. And he's saying, no, that's not the gospel you heard at first. And that's not the gospel that's being preached in the world. And that's not the gospel that's bearing fruit. Lift up your eyes. And we also need to remember that. We need to make sure we are not believing something that's so narrow, but we're believing something that is something that's being believed all around the world and bearing fruit. Because you imagine if we were the only ones that believed the gospel the way we do? There's something wrong with that, right? something wrong with that. But the beautiful thing is you can look all around the world, you can look throughout history, and you can see uh, men and women who believed in the grace of God. I'll just say, that's one of the dangers of Mormonism. It's one of the dangers if you're a Mormon, um, you get this isolated, narrow view of things. Basically, it's like, whatever happens around me is the only thing that is true but you need to lift up your vision and look globally, look historically. Grace has gone forth into all the world and grace has borne fruit. So it's very important. 
not to be isolated. So in closing, there's only one gospel. It's the one we heard at first. It's the only thing that brings assurance. Okay? Let me just say that one more time. The true gospel of the grace of God is the only thing that will bring you assurance. There's nothing else that can bring you assurance of eternal life. And assurance alone produces works and love in our life. So God wants us to have assurance, brothers and sisters. God doesn't want you to be always questioning whether you're going to go to heaven or not, whether you've been forgiven or not, whether you're going to make it or not. God wants you to come to a place where you are resting in Christ, in his sufficiency, that he's enough for you and it's done. God wants you to have assurance. And when you have assurance, then you'll see your life change. But don't think that your life has to change before you can have assurance. You'll never have it. In closing, last verse, verse 8. I'll just make this comment. Epaphras shared the gospel with with the Colossians, and then he came back to Rome. He visited Paul and... uh, he got to report to Paul the fruit that was born in their life. He's saying, Paul, I shared the gospel in Colossae. They believed the good news. They had assurance, and they love one another. He reports to them the love that they have in the Spirit. That's a good report. And this is the love of the Spirit, or love in the Spirit. The love in the Spirit is the love produced by the hope that comes from the gospel. That's the love in the spirit. You should write that down. (laughs) Just giving you a warning. The love in the spirit is the love that comes from the hope that comes from the gospel. Produced by the hope that comes from the gospel. That's That's what the love in the spirit is. And so that's what it means to live and walk and move and have your being in the spirit. It's to have hope in the gospel and love that comes from that hope. It's living in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you that it has been preached from the beginning and in all the world and bears fruit. We thank you that it produces love in us when rightly believed. And we thank you for the assurance of salvation, the assurance of salvation that that comes from the gospel of grace. And I pray for all of us here, Lord, and, and all the Christians, Lord, beyond these four walls, Lord, that we would all come to rest in the sufficiency of Christ, that we wouldn't stop looking at our own works, stop looking at how bad we are and how unworthy we are, and look at you and how sufficient you are for us. I pray for all of us that we would have assurance and come to rest in you, Lord, and that you'd produce love in us, God, the love that comes from that hope. Make us people who walk in the Spirit, I pray, and give you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.